Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, I have an interview with the excellent Dr. Andrea McDowell. But before we get started with introductions, I wanted to give you a small update about the podcast. Over the past year, I've been going through a job transition and had to put my own written episodes on hold as I adjusted to the expectations and the rhythms of my new job. I am now getting my bearings and will resume releasing my narrative episodes again starting next month. In the meantime, I'm going through the catalog of interviews I've conducted over the past six months. Thank you for your patience and understanding, and in particular, I want to thank my Patreon subscribers who have continued to support me through this process. Thank you. Now on to today's episode. Today, I have Dr. Andrea McDowell on the show. Professor McDowell is a graduate of Yale College and Yale Law School and holds a PhD in ancient history from the University of Pennsylvania. She's an expert on the legal and social history of ancient Egypt. Her many publications in that area include a book on ancient Egyptian legal procedure, as well as a more general work on village life in ancient Egypt. She has taught Egyptology at Leiden, Oxford, and John Hopkins Universities. In recent years, Professor McDowell has turned to American legal history. She recently published a book called We the Miners, about Americans and self-government in the California Gold Rush. In the Gold Rush, the miners' meetings were the only form of government. Using parliamentary procedure known as the Roberts Rules of Order, the American miners adopted law codes, decided property disputes, and held criminal trials, even after the state of California established the official court system. McDowell is particularly interested in the dynamics of crowd and individual, including the openings for sober-minded men using parliamentary procedure to take back the initiative from the loudest and angriest members of the crowd. She is equally interested in the failure of the same sober men to intervene when a subset of the population slaughtered Native Americans and expelled foreigners from the mines, even though at least some Americans strongly disapproved of what was happening. This book is the focus of our conversation, and we explore many interesting topics along those lines and others. Please enjoy our conversation. So in, in the introduction to your book, you describe some of the obvious limitations of source material and then the way uh, some of the events that happened during the gold rush were portrayed in maybe a rosy way by some of the people involved. Uh, in what ways did the sourcing and the materials that you work with uh, hamper or limit your process and how did you uh, work through that? Oh, that's interesting. So it's true that all of the historiography from California was pretty promotional. They wanted to attract people to California. They wanted to attract money to California. And also the, the primary sources, the diaries of the miners and their letters home were written for their family, for their parents and for their wives. And they were careful to put themselves in a pretty good light. They didn't want to upset their family back home. And I thought the best example of that was that one of the um, diarists who was writing to his family. Oh, there are two good examples. One diarist who was writing to his family, who were all teetotalers, and he himself was a teetotaler, wrote in code, <laughs> very easy to decipher code, I had a glass of wine today. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly this book was meant to be read by his family, and he was extracting for his own memory something that he didn't want to be read back at home. And similarly, someone who wanted to set up a, uh, a saloon wrote back, wrote a letter to his brother saying, please buy for me 
um, six large tasteful photographs of naked women, don't tell mom and dad. <laughs> so obviously they were doing different things on the ground than they were reporting back to their families. And so it, it isn't often that you get this sort of perspective, two different views of the same person's life. But I guess that answers your question. Yeah, because later on in your book, and we'll talk about mining claims in a little bit, uh, you mentioned that, for example, meetings aren't as covered in detail in the miners' own recollection of the events. And right. so I guess the question is, um, those gaps, uh, how, did you, how did you navigate around those gaps? Um, I'm not quite sure what you mean by miners' meetings not being described as closely. I mean, I, I wrote a lot about the, my, the meetings that were used to hold criminal trials. No one described them in very much detail, but when you put all of the descriptions together, you get a pretty complete picture of what's going on. Okay, so meetings. you can look at it in the aggregate and, and right. kind of discern some general patterns. So most of the people that I have on to talk about this particular period in time are historians that are using kind of the historian toolbook uh, to write about this period. Can you distinguish for us how legal history either differs or is similar to a traditional uh, historical writing of this event? There hasn't been much writing on legal history. <laughs> I've, I find that most of the writing about the California gold rush is popular. So I think that the number of people doing sort of serious analytical work on this period is increasing over the, the past few years. And there have some, been some really in-depth studies, but there's, they're outnumbered at present by the sort of more popular or more sensational descriptive works on the, on the, in the area. But mm -hmm. in the area of things like water law and, um, sort of capitalism and extermination of the Indian population. In recent years, we've gotten much more thorough, much more complete historiography. So let's talk a little bit about the frontier mining operations and kind mm -hmm. of set, set a picture for people. And so let's take a step back and just kind of give a, a, a quick, broad description of the mining operations to kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about in terms of the legal and political organizations of these communities. So can you just give us a, a, a basic picture of what we're talking about? In California and, and gold yeah. rushes generally? Yes. So um, gold in California was discovered absolutely in the wilderness. There was no state, there was no land ownership. And so the miners came into this absolutely unstructured world and when gold was discovered, of course, there was a flood of individuals into this area and they just started working. There, was no, there were no landowners to deal with. <laughs> they just started working and packed as many people as possible into the richest digging. So they were working right on top of each other. So in the very beginning, there was no, there wasn't even a claim system. They were just working shoulder to shoulder. And eventually as they worked out the richest gold, they did assign themselves claims very small, 10 by 10 feet, eventually they got bigger. And um, they recognized one another's claims. I mean, in a way, and what a claim was, was the right to work there as long as you were actually there. And if you abandoned it, if you were gone for more than three days, anyone else could jump in. So you didn't own that land, you only had a right to work there. And in a way, it's, it's similar to if someone threw, um, you know, coins across the floor and, and then a crowd crowded in. People wouldn't push each other aside, but neither could you, could you say, I, this is mine and, and mark off a larger area. So it's a, a system for 
packing as many people into the area as it could. In your research, you looked at other other rushes or yes. other mineral claims. Is there anything that you found that was distinctive about the California gold rush in terms of uh, claims and how it progressed? Well, the claim system is remarkably similar everywhere. I mean, quite astoundingly, even Papua New Guinea has a similar had a similar claim system during their gold rush and the African gold rushes and in Brazil and in Australia and in Canada, the system is pretty much the same, which is why I conclude that it's the the form of gold, the sort of the whole concept of there being gold that anyone could reach by digging that generates this this system that's that's almost similar to like seats on a train. You know, when a seat is full, it's in use when someone gets up out of it, then other people can sit down. Uh, and the second part of your question was, I've forgotten. Well, yeah, I was getting at what what makes uh, the California gold rush distinctive. So you, oh, you right. said the similarities. Is there anything yes. that makes it distinctive? There are the similarities, relative? yeah. What's interesting is that the Californians did have meetings, and I talk a lot about that in my book, that they held meetings. They were very good at holding meetings, and everyone knew basically Robert's Rules of Order, Uh, They were quick to elect a chairman and then take motions from the floor and hold votes and so on. So the the means by which they governed their claims was distinctively American. No No other population did this, but the system that they were working with was exactly the same, which is why I say it isn't the system of gold mining that was, or gold claims that was distinctively American, but the way they arrived the way they decided their codes and changed their codes and um, made group decisions was distinctively American. And that's interesting uh, as a contrast too, because we know that the gold rush was an international event and people came from around the world. And so why were uh, the American immigrants to California able to really set the standard, even in a, such a heterogeneous community? Well, I'm only talking about what the Americans were doing in their own groups. We don't really know how the French, well, we do know how the French were, Uh, interacting with one another. The French said in their own writings, we can't do what the Americans are doing. The Americans are able to organize themselves and to work together. And that went beyond the claim system to huge mining projects like moving the rivers out of the, the riverbed and getting to the ground underneath. The Americans could organize themselves using meetings, the same principle of of sort of acknowledging that the decision of the majority would govern everyone, they could use meetings to, to move rivers, to build enormous uh, water uh, transport systems. The French couldn't. They said if, if, or some people said that if French people tried to get together and work, to, work together, they would follow, uh, they would start quarreling within a couple of days and, and that would fall apart. They couldn't do what the Americans could do. Mm. So the French are doing their own thing and the Mexicans are doing their own thing and the Chinese are uh, not allowed to do anything, but they're they're working steadily in, on the poorest ground. So there you do see a, a, a real contrast between Americans and other miners. Let's distinguish kind of broadly, typical understanding of property rights in mm-hmm. the United States at this point mm-hmm. relative to uh, mining claim rights. And those right. those are distinctive ideas. Can you can you right. kind of uh, separate them for us a little bit? Well, I would say with mining with uh, property rights in the United States generally, uh, when you own a piece of land, it's yours. And if you walk away, you, it, nobody else can take it. And f- 
Furthermore, you can acquire as much land as you want. You could acquire multiple parcels next to each other. That, that didn't work in the California gold rush because of the pressure to, to keep, sorry, the pressure to, um, to get claims. So there were always other people outside waiting to get into the mining claims. And the system that emerged instead of an ownership right was, as I mentioned earlier, a use right, a right to an exclusive right to a small piece of property for as long as you were working there. And if you were gone for more than three days, you'd lost your right to that property. Mm. And in some jurisdictions, in some of the mining camps, you could only hold one claim at a time. So you couldn't build up an empire. You couldn't acquire five claims and put workers on the other four. Mm. Now, in other, in other camps, you were allowed to acquire multiple claims but it was still a use right. If you didn't have someone working on it, then you would lose that property. You couldn't, for instance, set aside a piece of parcel of land and say, this is mine and I'm going to exploit it over time. I'll be back next month to exploit it. If you weren't there, you lost it. It's interesting. I'm not a legal scholar by any respect, but I'm, I'm thinking about what you're saying and kind of, it reminds me in some respects of imminent domain, where if the land is not being used according to what the highest utility is according to some kind of sovereign, then that land can be taken and used for something else. So is that, yes. is there a similarity there? Um, eminent domain is something that the state can do. So the state can sweep in and uh, declare that, I mean, take some property from its owners. That's a very fraught and difficult <laughs> process. I think what this is more like is adverse possession. So mm -hmm. uh if you use a certain piece of property for more than 20 years in America, you acquire a right to that property. So if the landowner doesn't try to kick you off or doesn't give you notice that you're on his land, you acquire a right to be there. So mm -hmm. this is something like adverse possession, but speed it up enormously. Yes. Okay. If anyone else is working there, they can they acquire a right to that property. Um, do you think the source material used accurately portrays the role violence played um, in mining claims and enforcing mining claims? Among Americans, yes. I think there was very little fighting. We have a couple of accounts of people trying to throw each other off claims, but that was just that was just untenable. If if one person tried to throw another off the claim, the whole community of miners would unite to kick him out of the diggings. So I think there's very little fighting over the claims. In terms of violence, generally, there was a lot of violence, I think, in the saloons. There was a certain amount of murder. Saloon fighting, what went on between gamblers, that didn't really get a lot of press. And I, we don't get enough descriptions of how disordered and unruly and sort of wild the mining camps were. That wasn't something the miners were interested in, or at least they weren't interested in telling their families about it, which is what this is all about. Right. If violence ended up in a murder, then, of course, we get a trial, a lynch trial. And that did draw a lot of coverage from mm. the miners. Yeah, we'll, we'll come to lynch trials in a minute. I, I do want to talk about these meetings. I don't know if my listeners have, have covered them at all. Mm -hmm. um, in, I, I had Susan Lee Johnson on. And we talked quite a bit oh, about yes. camps, um, but we didn't really get into meetings. Can you, so can you describe these meetings um, for us a little bit more clearly and how they were used to handle disputes? Meetings followed Robert's Rules of Order, which we're less familiar with now than people were in the 19th century. And Robert's Rules of Order are a method for a large group of people organizing and reaching a group decision very efficiently. And, and it starts with, you can start absolutely from scratch. 
by nominating a chairman and then asking for a vote on that chairman. And once the chairman is in position, he can ask for motions from the floor and anyone on the floor can make a motion and that's put to a vote. And that's a, a, a system for very quickly organizing people towards a, a common decision. And it was used all over the United States at this time in the 19th century for organizing literary societies and charitable works and building roads. And according to Alexis de Tocqueville, it sort of took the place of government in the United States generally, this ability of the locals to, to organize themselves in a sort of quasi-government, temporary quasi-government uh, body to carry out local works or make decisions about the local, the local uh, government. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most interesting finds in my book is the, the role of meetings and sort of a commitment to democracy which had the advantage that once a decision was made, the minority, the people who were in the minority had to accept the majority decision because there was a consensus on that and an intolerance of people who tried to, after the, after the decision was made, to go their own way. Mm. Well, at least in the first half of the gold rush, let's, uh, let's jump into talking about lynching. Uh, what's a lynch trial? The original Charles Lynch held in the, during the Revolutionary War when there was no government in Virginia, I believe he was, held uh, trials on his own authority because there was no government. So what do you do when a crime is committed in, in the absence of government? Local officials held trials. And that gave its name to any extra legal system of punishment. So a, a lynch trial is simply a trial but outside of the formal legal system. So it's in a sense an illegal trial or an extra legal trial. In California, the trials took the form of a trial by meeting where again, chairman, et cetera, et cetera. And then it, the, the, the minors as a group served as, as the judge and they would decide as a judge would, all procedural questions about whether the defendant would get counsel, whether there would be prosecuting counsel, whether there would be a jury, how the jury would be selected. And then the trial would proceed as a normal common law or American trial would have proceeded with the counsel arguing for their clients and the jury listening to the whole. And after the, all of the evidence had been presented, the jury would withdraw and would reach a verdict, guilty or not guilty and would return and present its, its verdict to the, um, to the group. At which point in, a, in, a, in an American trial, the judge ordinarily does the sentencing, but the, here the population of minors was the judge. And the, so the question of the penalty would be submitted to the population as a whole and they would vote. <laughs> so that was a moment of, um, it wasn't chaotic, but there was there were certainly tensions and factions within the group. Usually the first person to make a proposal would say, hang him. And, uh, and then there would be a counter, a counter proposal, something less, generally whipping. The whole group would vote on what the penalty would be. So it's an odd combination of formality and sort of group dynamics. <laughs> as to what the penalty would be. And it would, it would be, for murder, it would always be execution, hanging, 
and for theft, it could be either execution or whipping. But it, given that it had to pass a majority vote, you couldn't make the you couldn't propose that the penalty would be too light, because then you wouldn't get a majority. So even the moderate people, even people like you and I, would have to sort of carefully and tactically suggest a counter <laughs> punishment, where thirty lashes or thirty nine lashes would be about the the minimum you could get away with. Is your observation that the sentencings were more severe, given that they were decided by groups as opposed to what we imagine is a a judge deciding a punishment? I think they were. I think I think that, as I was saying, because of the majority vote, you had this pull of the more violent members of society, sort of pulling the the average to the to a harsher penalty. But a penalty of thirty nine lashes depended partly on that judgment and partly on the person who was applying the lashes. <laughs> mm. So there was an, an additional random factor is who you're going to get to do the whipping. And the whipping could be harsher or less harsh, depending on the person carrying it out. Mm. I, one sort of loses track of how this went after the verdict was pronounced. Some people describe their their nausea at hearing the whippings or seeing the whippings. And um, if they were applied really rigorously, it seems to be, you know, an almost death penalty. <laughs> Once we hear the judge, um, Judge Field actually, who became a justice on the Supreme Court of the United States later, saying that he gave a, he put a word in the ear of the person doing the lashing to put it on a bit lightly. So it could be a lot milder. Hmm. We often hear the word used, the the term used casually, frontier justice. Yeah. Um, is does this differ from other uh, forms of legal proceedings to deal with uh, crimes in other frontier domains, or is this uh, funny? You should ask that because that's what I'm writing about right now. Okay. <laughs> so um, I am discovering that in other mining, in other gold rushes or other silver rushes around the United States, we had the same system emerging. Outside of the mining territories, if you're right on the frontier, right, the, the pioneers and the settlers in Illinois and so on, you have a different dynamic because there the problem really was desperados preying on the community. Hmm. And then you had more often the formation of regulators or, you know, a group of individuals, generally the leaders, local leaders, hunting down the desperados and executing them without a proper trial. So there's kind of a division between the, the law that we apply to ourselves and our neighbors if they commit a crime and the law that the law that's really the law of self-preservation of hunting down predators who are preying on our community. Hmm. And that's um, would you would you compare that to the vigilantism you talk about in the, yes. later on in the chapter? Um, yeah, so, regulators and vigilantes. Yeah. So that that's more, I'm more familiar with that and thinking mm -hmm. about the genocide that it happened over the course of the 1850s with the Native American communities. Can you talk a little bit about how your research ties into uh, what Ben Madley claimed that uh, there was a genocide that occurred in the 1850s? Yes, I love Ben Madley's work. I think it's fantastic, uh, even though it makes you sick to your stomach to read it, but it's the sort of thing one ought to read because it doesn't occur in the official accounts at all, really. I mean, it's not described in detail in the official accounts. 
the it, the miners had a an odd sort of um, relationship to those executions. We read about them fairly seldom, but it does seem from the journals that the miners kept that the people who kept journals were a subset of the mining community. They're the ones who have family at home and they're writing to the family at home. So they are not frontiersmen born and bred, but people from the East Coast who have come to the frontier and um, I think that the people carrying out the genocide of the Indians are more likely to be frontiersmen. We know that the or Oregonians were particularly vicious against the Indians because of some attacks that they had suffered from Indians in Oregon, as though that had anything to do with the Indians in California. So the attacks on the Indians, in my opinion, but it's it's hard to, to really to really document this, are frontiersmen going out and attacking Indians, and the people who are writing about it disapprove, but what surprises me is that they didn't do anything about it. So they had this mechanism available to them of miners meetings and expressing disapproval at the least and punishing wrongdoers, which would be even better, but they didn't do that. And that has to be because either they were afraid of these frontiersmen, which is quite plausible because they were pretty violent or they didn't care enough. So I would say this is an area where self-government sort of, falls flat. They outnumbered, I think they outnumbered the exterminators, but they didn't actually, and they disapproved of them, but they didn't actually do anything about it. It's partly on them then, these executions of the Indians that they might've been able to stop, but didn't care enough to actually do anything about. Yeah, in my research, I've, it seems like it's a, a kind of a form of a reprisal system where there's some kind of precipitating event and then there is an, an overwhelming response. There is sometimes a precipitating event or an alleged precipitating event, like supposedly mm -hmm. the Indians stole some horses or something of that kind. And then whoops, after it was all over, people found that the horses were grazing not far away. Perhaps it was the same with the cattle. Cattle disappeared and they just assumed that it was the Indians who had stolen them and not <laughs> didn't go looking among their neighbors or didn't go looking to see if they'd strayed. But then the attacks just, they seemed to be, the people doing the attacking seemed to take pleasure in them, I have to say. When they're standing on an eminence over an Indian village and they're shooting everyone, men, women, and children, you know, and, and dashing babies' heads against trees, that's beyond, re you can't take reprisals against babies that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's, yeah. it's got to be something grander. And there was a government policy in California of either exterminating the Indians or reducing them to a state of semi-slavery. So, you know, they're in on a bigger, a bigger movement to clear the land of Indians. Let's jump to your conclusion uh, in your book. You say, uh, but from a bird's eye perspective, it, it is remarkable that a group of ordinary people govern themselves by procedures originally developed in the British Parliament, and they undertook to enact laws, a function that is a principle reserved to the state. Uh, so why do you think it's remarkable? Well, no one else did it. That's <laughs> for one. And for another, it's, it is quite surprising I don't know how you could say it's other than surprising in the in the wilderness a thousand miles away from the nearest state 
that people are holding essentially mini parliaments in order to govern themselves, that they were able to do it and that they had a commitment to majority rule and sort of a, an orderly um, standardized way of reaching group decisions. I was surprised by it because it's so different from what you think of as the frontier and the, a world without laws and a world without um, government where you, you think of it being every man for himself or for his family and not a familiarity with the rules of parliamentary procedure and a commitment to uh, majority rule. Let's close with book recommendations, my favorite section. What are two or three book recommendations you'd give to us if we want to explore this topic or others you're interested in further? Ah, there are so many. I I don't know if your readers are aware of the Library of Congress website, Chronically in America, that has a whole, that has collected all of the, not all of the, but almost all of the printed diaries of minors. I use that a lot, and it's also a searchable database, so it's wonderful way to get quickly to information about um, what's going on in the heads of the miners in California. And similarly, the uh, California Digital Newspaper Collection, which is also searchable, which will lead you to newspaper accounts of what's going on on the ground. Those aren't, neither of those are things that you can read from beginning to end, but in terms of sort of getting to some interesting anecdotes and, and descriptions of what's going on. I recommend them very highly. For not quite California, but the Cal the Overland Trail to California, John Phillips Reed's works, Law for the Elephant and Policing the Elephant, are about the immigrants on the Overland Trail who become the miners in California. So sometimes you've got these diaries on the Overland Trail and then they're continued in the gold mine. And they saw themselves as in California already. When they were on the trail where there was no law, they said California law applied. So that's certainly part of the same world. And John Philip Reed's books are so fun to read. He has a great style and he gets great anecdotes. So I go with them. I think there's a lot more good history being written in the last 20 or 30 years after a long period of sort of sensational works. I like you mentioned Ben Madley's book, An American Genocide. I wouldn't call that a fun read, <laughs> but boy, does it explore an, a, a hugely important area in detail that all Americans should be aware of, even if they don't like it. And then um, there's there's other, let's see, Donald Pisani, To Reclaim a Divided West, and uh, He's got interesting work on the, the water mining, the water delivery companies, which we haven't talked about, but that's capitalism at the end, getting involved in delivering water to the miners and eventually controlling gold mining. Really interesting studies there. I like Mary Floyd Williams' book on the history of the San Francisco Committee of Vigilance, which isn't really in the gold mines, but it's also um, a, a a parallel um, experience of crime control, in this case in San Francisco. Um, in Australia, David Goodman wrote Gold Seeking, Victoria and California in the 1850s, where he contrasts the American approach to order and that in Australia. And you can learn a lot when you say what's interesting about meetings in America, partly by looking at what's going on in Australia 
And comparing that to California, you see how different the American approach was from that of the British Empire, which was very top down and suppressed any attempts of the local population to, to meet and run its own, own criminal justice system. So yeah, could go on, <laughs> other yeah. gold rushes, but. <laughs> well, let's close by talking about uh, what you're doing next. You mentioned briefly that you're working um, on some frontier justice. Can you give us a little bit more details and yeah. uh, where that project is? So in, the, in my book on the California gold rush, I suggested that what we're seeing there especially in criminal law, was the law of the frontier generally, and that that hadn't been explored, and that there was too much, I thought, too much emphasis on what you, what you suggest, the law of the frontier, which is sort of understood to be gunslingers and whoever draws his gun first is, is the winner. Uh, so my theory was that we had these lynch trials with emphasis on trials all over the frontier. Um, now I'm finding that where wherever there are gold rushes or mining rushes, the same pattern emerges. Um, I'm not finding it that in any of the frontier settlements. And I, I can only guess that's because frontier settlements were too sparsely populated. Maybe there wasn't enough crime, maybe there wasn't enough documentation. And what we do have documented are these regulators who seem to be groups that um, are organized among the elite in the community to punish outsiders. So it's a different model. It's not a democratic model, but a self-defense type model and led by, you know, the local, not judge, <laughs> he wouldn't get involved, but the large scale ranchers. Mm. Well, the book is We, the Miners, Self-Government. Um, I encourage everyone to pick it up, hopefully at your local bookstore, but if you must, at Amazon. And uh, I appreciate you having this conversation with me. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash History of California. We'll see you next time.